Welcome back, everyone. I'm Phil, and this is another podcast edition of Bookie, a casual diary of various lessons, topics, and ideas I'm thinking through out loud. Today's piece is called Energy, Inflation, and Geopolitics, learning some painful lessons about our past, present, and future. This was really fun to write and hopefully fun to read and listen to as well. Let's get started. If your Twitter feed is anything like mine, it's probably become a torrential downpour of geopolitical hot takes. Everyone is suddenly an expert in economics, politics, and international relations. There was so much whiplash from all the contradictory opinions. I needed to somehow cut through the noise, so I decided to do my own research and formulate my own point of view on what was actually happening. Energy was at the center of every interesting question I wanted to answer for myself. What is happening in Europe? Why are we suddenly butting heads with China? Are we permanently screwed with inflation and climate change? What started as a truth-seeking exercise became a multi-month deep dive on energy policy. Energy is clearly essential to how the world works, but it's a total black box system where we recognize the importance of its outputs without ever thinking deeply about its inputs. By exploring this topic some more, I began to see how the way we procure energy, how we transport it, and how we regulate it determines living standards, influences geopolitics, and will ultimately decide the fate of this planet. So think of this piece as Energy 101, where I tried to distill everything I've learned in the past couple of months into a hopefully fun to read bookie article. After all, the best way to learn something is to try to teach it, so here you go. It'll be worthwhile. Even cursory knowledge of the basics provides a much deeper understanding of how the world really works. With energy as our lens, we'll examine the headlines dominating our new cycle by exploring how we got here, a brief history of world energy markets, what's happening today, specifically in Europe, and finally, what happens next. The future is impossible to predict, but there are some harsh realities we're guaranteed to face. How we got here. The arc of human history can be characterized by our adoption of higher and higher energy-dense fuel sources where each new fuel source spurs dramatic changes in how society operates. We started by burning wood to keep warm and feeding hay to the animals that tilled our farmland. Then we transitioned to coal, which releases 50% more energy than the equivalent weight of wood. The US and Western Europe transformed into modern economies using coal to make steam, run machines, and generate electricity. Then we discovered crude oil, a fossil fuel that can store 75% more energy in the same enclosed space as coal. We figured out how to refine crude oil into petroleum, which allowed us to mass produce gasoline and diesel fuel, making it possible for us to drive our cars and fly around the world. Petroleum is also a key ingredient in the basic building blocks of modern civilization. The clothes we wear, the plastics we use, and the fertilizers we feed our crops all need petroleum. The world does not have enough food nor the modern amenities it currently enjoys without it. Because crude is fairly easy to transport, a global network of ships and trucks created efficient energy markets that elevated living standards worldwide. Crude oil literally fueled globalization, and it's a natural place for us to begin our history lesson. The rise and fall of U.S. oil, 1950 to 1990. 
From 1950 to 1970, the U.S. produced 53% of the world's oil. Europe and Japan needed to rebuild their economies after World War II, and we effectively doubled our GDP by supplying the oil they needed to modernize their economies. This lasted until oil production peaked in the 1970s, when, for the first time in our history, we had to rely on oil imported from outside our borders. During this period, the founding members of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, known as OPEC, comprised of Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Kuwait, and Venezuela, produced 48% of the world's oil. Recognizing their leverage, they increased oil prices four and a half times in 1973 and plunged the U.S. into an energy crisis. Americans rationed their energy usage, waited hours to fill up their gas tanks, and even siphoned gas from other vehicles just to get by. Without cheap access to energy, the price of goods and services rose dramatically. The economy stalled and unemployment increased because businesses had to lay off workers. This was the infamous stagflation era that we're desperately trying to avoid repeating today. The 1970s and 1980s were punctuated by two significant OPEC-coordinated price hikes. Both resulted in a 90% contraction of the world economy, quickly followed by global recessions. By the end of the 1980s, economic activity had contracted so much that an oversupply of oil forced OPEC to lower prices and set production limits for its member countries. While the U.S. ultimately found its way out of this tumultuous era, the pain of not having access to energy would have a lasting impact on our policy decisions for years to come. The rise of China, 1990 to 2010. Oil prices stabilized in the 1990s, and many just assumed $35 to $40 a barrel would just be the steady state price of oil moving forward. That was until China's economy experienced a transformation never before seen in human history. Within 20 years of joining the World Trade Organization, 500 million Chinese citizens were lifted out of poverty, nearly twice the size of the entire population of the U.S. Anything that could help pave roads, power factories, and modernize an economy surged in demand. The price of oil, copper, and other central commodities skyrocketed during this commodity supercycle. China's voracious appetite for energy planted the seeds of conflict that we're seeing bloom today. Months after the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, then-President Hu Jintao suggested that certain powers could severely disrupt China's access to foreign oil. Beijing was skeptical that something as drastic as military intervention could be motivated by something as abstract as democracy. In their minds, if the U.S. was concerned enough about oil to invade Iraq, then China should certainly worry as well. Half of the world's oil tankers passed through the South China Sea, so taking control of the waters bordering Taiwan became a new strategic priority. The CCP understands that any threat to energy access threatens the economic prosperity that ensures the populace continues supporting their regime. For China, the Taiwan issue isn't just about cultural history and national identity. It's key to protecting the shipping lanes that power their massive economic engine. The Shale Revolution, 2010 to 2020. We often associate the U.S.'s economic bull run in the 2010s with the rise of software companies while ignoring the impact of the shale revolution. Shale is a form of sedimentary rock that can be used to extract natural gas and crude oil. Extracting oil and gas from the shale rock required two innovations. 
one, fracking, and two, horizontal drilling. We've actually had these capabilities since 1947, but the technologies were simply too nascent and too expensive to deploy at scale. Higher energy prices in the 2010s motivated more experimentation, investment, and risk-taking to profit from increased demand. And the U.S. had a lot of shale. 20% of the world's natural gas is now supplied by the U.S., and 40% of which comes from U.S. shale. The U.S., once dependent on foreign oil and gas, became the world's number one energy producer. Supply chains supporting natural gas created nearly 3 million jobs in the U.S. by 2019, and our energy surplus lowered utility bills for millions of consumers. We had a stronger hand and greater flexibility to pursue our international agenda now that we were no longer relying on foreign energy. The problem now wasn't securing access to energy, it was figuring out how we can profit off our surplus. Because natural gas can't be easily stored and transported like crude oil, demand for U.S. shale advanced a new market and supply chain for a liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Facilities would cool natural gas to negative 259 degrees Fahrenheit into a liquid that can be shipped anywhere in the world. Countries that needed this energy would build regasification facilities to heat imported LNG back into gas and then lay pipelines to connect those facilities to storage and energy plants. The U.S. profited tremendously, but shipping LNG is still prohibitively expensive for most countries, especially those that are landlocked. Most natural gas consumption today is still delivered via pipeline. While they take billions of dollars to build, they are much more efficient to run once properly integrated into a nation's energy system. This will be an important fact to keep in mind as we examine the current energy crisis in Europe. What's happening today? If today's natural gas prices hold, EU consumers and businesses will pay a staggering 1.4 trillion euros in annual energy costs a 7x increase from the year before. This increase alone will eat up 8% of the EU's entire GDP. To understand how the EU got into this predicament, we'll need to discuss Europe's energy mix and its relationship with Russia. Before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there has been a concerted EU effort to increase the share of wind and solar while phasing out oil and coal production. Unfortunately, going green has actually made the EU more reliant on fossil fuels. Intermittency continues to be a huge problem for renewables. In other words, the sun does not always shine and the wind does not always blow. When you primarily rely on wind and solar, there is actually a higher risk of blackouts given energy demand can swing dramatically at any particular time of day. Even Denmark, which at times produces more electricity from renewables than it can consume, still depends on importing energy from other EU countries to stabilize their grid. Germany is two decades into its initiative to have all energy production come from renewables, but is still primarily reliant on fossil fuels. And when you combine this with a decade-long effort to decommission nuclear power plants after the Fukushima disaster, it results in the region producing only 42% of its energy internally while relying on oil and natural gas externally. No EU country is energy independent. Russia, another significant supplier of natural gas, invested a tremendous amount of time, effort, and capital to connect its gas supply to Europe. Russia knew that once they were built, these pipelines would become a tremendous source of political and economic leverage. 
Russian imports alone account for 40% of all natural gas consumption in the EU, and that dependence is as high as 65% in countries like Germany, where Russia's built direct pipelines. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, the sweeping set of sanctions on Russian energy exports was unprecedented. The EU showed a willingness to cut off its energy dependence to inflict maximum pain on the Russian economy, thwarting Russia's willingness and ability to continue its aggression. Well, kinda. An embargo on Russian oil won't take effect until December. 10% of all energy consumed in Europe comes from Russian oil. So while the embargo is a drastic step, Europe needed time to prepare for such a dramatic transition. This gave Russia six months to find new customers for their oil, a tedious but not insurmountable task given how easily oil can be transported around the globe. The Russian ruble crashed after these sanctions were announced, only to bounce back once Russia found willing buyers for the discounted oil in China and India. It's also important to note that Russian natural gas was totally exempt from sanctions. European governments realized that would spell disaster for their economies and their citizens. Not too long ago, the Nord Stream pipelines flowing into Europe were supposed to symbolize a new era of Russian-EU cooperation. Much like how the U.S. championed China's admission into the WTO, Western European countries like Germany cited that economic codependence with Russia would support peace, increase collaboration, and maybe even catalyze democratic principles. Today, these pipelines have become artifacts of Europe's wishful thinking, empowering Russia to hold their energy supply for ransom in response to sanctions. Throughout the war, Russia's state-owned gas company Gazprom would temporarily limit or halt gas altogether flowing through the Nord Stream pipelines, driving natural gas prices higher and higher to offset losses from selling oil at a discount to China and India. Gazprom would cite maintenance issues, but it was most likely Russia experimenting with how much pain they could inflict on Europe while measuring how dramatically they can manipulate the energy market. Shutoffs and disruptions have become more commonplace testing Europe's resolve in upholding sanctions as they approached the coldest month of the year. In response, the EU increased internal energy production, reconfiguring power plants to burn coal, and delaying the scheduled decommissioning of nuclear power plants. Going green takes a back seat when people are cold and energy prices are sky high. They're also pleading with households to cut back on electricity usage, with some governments even regulating when businesses can open and what temperatures people are allowed to set their thermostats. The U.S. extended a lifeline to Europe by increasing LNG exports, but it's only a fraction of what Russia previously supplied. Just this past week, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline was mysteriously sabotaged, damaged to the point that experts are uncertain if it can ever be repaired. While it's still unclear who is responsible, this marks a point of no return for Europe's reliance on Russian gas. We're seeing the real-time restructuring of the global energy supply chain, and unfortunately, an energy crisis in one side of the world has a tendency to surface in another. By diverting more LNG to Europe, inflation is worsening in developing countries as precious energy they were previously receiving from the U.S. is now harder to access and costlier. And the U.S. isn't immune to this either. After Russian oil was effectively taken off the market, gasoline prices started rising in the U.S., this prompted Biden to visit Saudi Arabia in order to convince them to increase oil production. 
fist bumping their head of state despite earlier vowing to make that country a pariah due to their human rights violations. He also authorized releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the U.S.'s emergency supply of oil, to keep gasoline prices from rising too quickly. Cynics were quick to point out that the scheduled inflow of emergency oil conveniently coincided with the midterm election season. Finally, the U.S. has likely reached peak natural gas production, and it won't be long before politicians wonder whether supporting Europe is worth higher energy prices in their home states. If this mirrors the U.S. reaching peak oil in the 1970s, we should expect to see LNG export quotas or even an outright ban on exporting natural gas entirely. This is a generation-defining global energy crisis, and combined with navigating inflation, the stakes have never been higher for sound policy decision-making. What happens next? We need to be realistic about the challenges ahead. The past 20 years before COVID have really been a historical anomaly from an inflation standpoint. We enjoyed multiple simultaneous trends that kept inflation at bay. The U.S. shale revolution gave us cheap access to energy. China's rise gave the world a manufacturing boom. And globalized supply chains ensured goods went to the right places at efficient market prices. Today, U.S. shale production has likely reached its peak. China's economic growth and industrial capacity have started to level off. Wars, sanctions, and geopolitical tensions are reshaping supply chains to be much less globalized. The cost of energy is the number one determinant of the price of goods and services, and costs are rising because reliable energy is becoming increasingly more difficult to access. Over the next couple of years, the US and Europe are going to feel the impact of an issue that's been brewing for decades. The conflict between having secure energy that's affordable, available, and reliable versus clean energy that can protect our air, land, water, and atmosphere. With enough time, humanity's transition to renewables will ultimately make secure energy and clean energy a false trade-off. Economies naturally transition from relying on coal to oil to natural gas and hopefully to renewables. But that transition doesn't happen overnight, and it's a privilege that only developed economies can afford today. China makes most of its electricity from coal, Rural India cooks mainly over charcoal. Vietnam relies on cheap coal to support an economy whose future growth depends on its ability to manufacture cheap goods. Not only is most of the world still in that first phase of burning coal, the vast majority of the goods and services we consume are produced by coal in some fashion. We'll need to raise the standard of living for massive swaths of the global population so that governments even have the luxury to consider taking care of the environment. After all, if your people are struggling to find fuel to cook or pay for electricity, wasting a bounty of energy to import solar panels to fulfill arbitrary ESG requirements will seem abhorrent to you. Today, fossil fuel demand is above 10 billion tons a year. That's five times more than the recent annual harvest of all staple grains feeding humanity and twice the amount of drinking water consumed worldwide. We underestimate the will and urgency necessary to replace something so ubiquitous at such scale. This isn't replacing landlines with iPhones. It's replacing enormous infrastructure made of massive turbines, pipelines, and supply chains. Achieving the Paris Accord's goal to be net zero by 2050 calls for an energy transition unprecedented in both pace and scale. 
And that's assuming perfect coordination and accountability. And even with an abundant and reliable renewable energy source, we would still need to develop new large-scale processes to replace other petroleum-based products like plastics and fertilizers. Given the lead time to adopt new technologies and to integrate these changes into our energy system, fossil fuels will be essential to society for at least the next century. Accepting this painful reality, our goal should be to utilize energy that is affordable, available, and reliable while minimizing the environmental impact as best we can. While I'm optimistic that we'll look back on this moment in history as a catalyst for finally weaning off our dependence of fossil fuels, a successful transition will be a concatenation of many forces, from what governments do in terms of regulation, to the availability of minerals, to our ability to fuel innovation and economic growth. We need an all-of-the-above energy policy instead of complacently adopting truisms like wind and solar good, fossil fuels bad. Every energy source comes with trade-offs that we'll need to weigh as we make this pivotal transition. Fortunately, some promising trends are unfolding. A nuclear renaissance. After decades of drawing misplaced fears and misinformed environmental concerns from the public, nuclear energy is having a resurgence in popularity. The capacity factor of a nuclear power plant, in other words, how often it can run at maximum power, is 92%, nearly twice as reliable as a coal or natural gas plant, and almost three times more reliable than a wind and solar plant. The DOE estimates that 300 coal plants in the U.S. could be retrofitted to become nuclear reactors. If these projections hold, they will be a cost-effective way to reduce greenhouse emissions in those regions by 86% and increase economic activity by $275 million through new jobs. With the EU facing an energy crisis and the U.S. natural gas supplies dwindling, there's no better time to reinvest in nuclear power with conviction and urgency. And it appears the Biden administration is aware of this. Their Inflation Reduction Act allocated clean energy tax credits to nuclear, which will put it on the same playing field as renewables from an investment standpoint. Focusing on efficiency. While most of us measure our green energy progress via splashy headlines about sweeping environmental policies and electric vehicle adoption, we shouldn't ignore the impact of targeted, practical methods that mitigate the impact of fossil fuels. For example, SUVs emit 25% more CO2 than a standard gas-powered car, and when multiplied by 250 million SUVs on the road in 2020, even 10xing electric vehicle adoption in 20 years won't offset the carbon emissions from SUVs. SUVs in the 2010s were the second largest source of CO2 emissions growth, ahead of heavy industry, aviation, and only behind electricity generation. Enforcing fuel efficiency standards for all gasoline-powered vehicles will go a long way. Other examples include updating building codes to require proper insulation and modern heating slash cooling appliances. The Canadian government is offering grants for homeowners to upgrade their houses with more energy-efficient retrofits like double-paned windows and smart thermostats. They estimate that each successful retrofit will eliminate 2 to 3 tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year, along with $750 in individual energy costs. Like seatbelts in the 60s, these mechanisms exist at relatively low cost, but there needs to be a policy push to mandate their adoption. New technologies. Also don't want to overlook the impact of emerging technologies. This is the cool stuff. Advanced manufacturing and 3D printing could be utilized to manufacture critical components on site. 
reducing the cost and emissions from needing to transport them. A combination of autonomous electric vehicles and ride sharing will ensure people have access to mobility without the need to buy cars. And with bi-directional charging, EVs can charge other EVs, acting almost like a mobile battery going wherever electricity is most needed without constantly straining our electric grid. Several startups are commercializing small modular reactors. These are mini nuclear power plants that can be prefabricated, shipped, and installed on-site, which make them more affordable to build than large power reactors. Overall, technologies that make individual communities less dependent on a centralized electrical grid will ensure energy is efficiently used and quickly supplied to wherever it's needed most. Playing the long game. I'll conclude with this very important point. Any effective commitment towards change will be expensive and it'll need to last for at least two generations before carbon emissions return to acceptable levels. Even accelerating adoption of renewables, a greater focus on efficiency, and rapid development of new technologies will not show any convincing benefits for decades. The young citizens of affluent countries will have to, have to ask themselves whether the distant gains of combating climate change are worth the near-term costs. Can they sustain the course for more than half a century while knowing low-income countries, as a matter of supporting their growing populations, will still need to rely on fossil fuels? And will politicians in their 40s and 50s be willing to invest in efforts whose benefits they'll never see? I guess that depends on how much faith you have in humanity's ability to adapt and overcome, to work together and innovate in ways we've yet demonstrated. This conclusion is rather bleak, but I'm not writing this off just yet. The odds are certainly stacked against us, but it's also impossible to predict the course of human ingenuity. I'm betting we still find a way out of this deep hole we've dug ourselves into. After all, we don't really have a choice. And that does it for another bookie podcast. As you can probably tell, I've been bouncing around in terms of topics from something a little more reflective last time to something, uh, I guess, more cut and dry this time. But yeah, they're fun things to explore in different ways. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.